Good morning. Good morning and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land and I am Gloria J. Brown Marshall. And I'm so glad to be here with you on this fall day. So much of what we do is in the seasons. A season for love, a season to pass away, a season for growing, a season for harvest, season for planting. And in this season, this season that we have this fall, one of the major things that happens for a geek like me is that we get ready for the upcoming U.S. Supreme Court. It begins in the first week of October, first Monday, that is. And in order for me to talk to you about the Supreme Court, to talk to you about the legal issues, the cases that we've been dealing with, I have to come on the air and not just be knowledgeable, not just wake up, not just find myself wherever I happen to be in the world to a, a telephone, a laptop, uh, WhatsApp, some kind of way to get in touch with you. I try no matter what, no matter what my life schedule, everything else, the passing of my loved ones, I have tried to be there for you. And this show, um, something very special happened. One thing someone said, um, for Law of the Land and only for Law of the Land, we're going to give you $1,000 in matching fund money if your listeners will contribute, donate, give penny by penny, dollar by dollar, a matching amount to the $1,000. And I thought, I have, and I've always told you, the smartest listeners, I think, no, actually, I know. We are the smartest, uh, <laughs> to believe. Um, you are the smartest ones listening on this station. And so I said, okay, I know I'm giving them value. I know I am. I'm working so hard to do that. I really do work hard to do that. And no matter how late I have to stay up, I try to put my rundown together for this show, find wonderful guests, and we're having a guest today who's going to talk about Tyree Nichols, who's been out of... You know, the discussion, they, this country, as I've said to you many times, kills in this police department die at the hands of civilians we have in this country, over 1,200 a year. Civilians dying at the hands of police in this country, over 1,200. I brought you that. Michael G. and I actually, one year, when read the names of people who had died at the hands of police on this show. And we'll do that again, because I think that's necessary. Um, because someone asked me, well, why is it that some people get a protest and other people don't? Why is it if uh, over a thousand people die at the hands of police, we only really know about perhaps 15 or 20 at the most? So these are the things and, and ways in which we can raise up the, 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 the human beings who are dying at the hands of police. And they're not all black and brown and always gives me, you know, thought. Why aren't these other people rising up as well? Since not everyone, the majority, but not everyone dying at the hands of police will be black and brown. And I run into people who are white who will say to me, but my loved one died at the hands of police. And I was like, why don't you speak up? Why are you making it appear as though they're not killing people across the board? But I'm bringing this to you. The Washington Post right now, if you go to the Washington Post website, 
you will see they keep an ongoing list of the people who die at the hands of police. You're hearing that on this show. That's the value added so that you don't have to wait for the protest. You can go online at any time for the Washington Post. Just post the Washington Post, put it in your, your search engine, and you will see they keep this information. The the FBI doesn't keep all of this information. They were behind in keeping this information. And I've also, and you can find out by Googling my name, and I've talked before and will continue to talk um, about having some type of accountability. I've had wonderful guests on the show. So I want you to match this thousand dollars before our guest comes, after our guest comes, we only have this time together I want you to match the $1,000. I want you to, if you have um, a dollar, $5, $50, $100, for those people who are in Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, any of the Divine Nine, any of the Divine Nine, or you have relatives, friends in the Divine Nine, for those people who are teachers or associated with teachers, it's like, well, the teacher's like, I am... um, retired and it's like on a fixed income and i understand the the fixed income but you also have a fix right here right here because isn't wbai where you get your fix of information you're listening to law of the land because we've worked hard to give you this quality information that because it's my show anyway law-based is evidence-based you can go look it up and find out whether or not i'm telling you the truth the number is 212-209-2950-212-209-2950-212-209-2950. Call that number and say, I'm matching. I'm giving my amount to match the $1,000 that someone gave that's going toward the rent fund. Yes, remember the rent? I remember when I was a, <laughs> a little kid, I really looked up to my my older brother, who's deceased now. Yeah, I've lost a lot of people in my family. Um, and I remember he gave a rent party. Way back when I was a kid, he gave a rent party. So I remember that. Remember those rent parties? I have even attended a couple of New York rent parties. Remember back in the day when the music was slamming? And I always wondered, are they spending more money on, on drinks and food? They could be spending that money on the rent. But hey, don't ask me. But I want you to know that this could be our rent party. <laughs> We're trying to raise the money for the rent. A neighbor, let's say a neighbor's already given us a thousand dollars toward that rent and we need some more. So please, in all seriousness, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. This is the law of the land listener. I'm speaking to the one who knows we bring the quality to the programming, the one who knows that there's so much to be heard 24 hours a day. That means the lights have to be on 24 hours a day, that the electricity has to go into the the board that's used to have the engineer give you the voices from the producers and the hosts and the guests to get to you all of that. 24 hours a day. Think about if you had to have your lights on 24 hours a day. If you had to have the electricity that's needed for the um, board, and that's what we call it with all the knobs and everything else that Michael G uses to bring me to you, that has to be on 24 hours a day. 
And in order for that to happen 24 hours a day, we need your support. 212-209-2950-212-209-2950-212-209-2950. I want us to also understand that as you give, and we've gotten our first donation, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I said for the teachers, the teachers are now the retirees who are able to listen to this program, the other retirees from whether or not it's city government, from the private industry, from wherever you have now retired, I want you to give. I'm asking you, please, I am a member of a union. If you're a member of a union, can you give a little right now? If you are a member of a union, can you give a little bit right now? I'm a member of a teacher's professor's union. Yes, you didn't know this, and here you hear it on Law of the Land, that we have a professor's union, and I'm a member of that. It's called the Professional Congress, and we are part of uh, the other unions. And if there's a strike, we go on strike. We negotiate for contracts. We do all the things that all the other unions do. Professors, Professional Staff Congress is the name of our union. So union members, can we hear from you? Union members, we would love to hear from you. 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. Um, I am, wherever I've been in the world, somebody who feels um, very keenly that I need to help empower people with information. And that's the reason why I make sure that this show is of the highest quality possible. The guests we're going to have on today, Reverend Earl Fisher, Reverend Dr. Earl Fisher, is someone who's working with the Tyree Nichols case. And Tyree Nichols is the young man, 29 years old, who was beaten to death by officers in Memphis, Tennessee. And we saw the horrific camera footage of this, that these men did this, and and, and then they've, they've now been indicted. And I wanted to keep up with the case. I don't want the case to, to go away. I don't want it to fade into the woodwork. And so I brought him on to the show today. So he is going to be on after this listening break, listeners break um, and music break. And the listeners, I, I really need 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950 to know that I've thinking deeply about these cases involving um, um, police-involved um, civilian violence and the civilian um, lives that are being lost. And some people will say, well, but, you know, but what did the civilian do? Well, is it um, a capital offense to actually raise your hands and say, I didn't do something. Is it a capital offense? Capital offense means an offense that's um, punishable by death. It, these are capital offenses. Why is it that other people can commit mass murders and still be alive to stand trial? Why is it? Why is it that they can have a judge and a jury contemplate whether or not there's evidence, whether or not the person committed the crime and um, be sentenced. When a person is gunned down by police, slaughtered by police, choked by police until they're dead, that means that they never had a chance to put evidence before a jury, jury of their peers like you, to say, 
that I did or did not do this crime and whether or not that crime, if the person was convicted, is a capital crime that should be punishable by death. A speeding ticket is not a capital crime. Driving recklessly is not a capital crime. So at this point, I I really want us to understand in the Tyree Nichols case, Tyree Nichols was pulled over and we'll talk more about it right after this musical break for allegedly driving recklessly, coming home from work. But we'll find out the back story, the rest of it, because you need to know all of it. Before we go over to our musical break, 212-209-2950, I need one more donation so that we can get this ball rolling. We can match this $1,000. We're having our own rent party, our own version of a smart person's rent party. That's what we're having right here, the smart people's rent party, where we not only will have music, but we'll have the conversation that makes bringing us together under one roof and saving our roof having this rent party so valuable. 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. We're coming back on the other end to know more about the Tyree Nichols case and to better understand what is going on now with those officers. And, and this question that will be asked, these officers are all black killing another black person. What's up with that? And now the next voice after mine will be that of Reverend Dr. Earl Fisher, who is in um, Tennessee and on the ground working around the issues involved in the murder of Tyree Nichols. Thank you so much for joining us, Reverend Dr. Earl Fisher. Good morning, Sister Gloria. Thank you so much for having me. Well, um, one of the things that I will say is that... um, we have over a thousand murders or people who have died at the hands of police. Um, and the Tyree Nichols case was one of exec- exceptional gravity. And I, I would like you just to give us some of the facts that you know. You presided at one of the ministers presiding at the funeral. Um, you've been working in the, the area of social justice in the Tennessee region. And I just wanted to, to get your, your take on what are some of the moving parts in this particular case of this young man, 29 years old, killed by officers? Yeah, well, again, thank you for having me and for amplifying this. It's been a tumultuous, you know, year uh, for those of us in the city of Memphis who have been trying to advocate for justice and to be frank and fair, not just justice for Tyree Nichols. Absolutely that. And I think this is something that has been so high profile that the eyes of the nation and the world have been on Memphis relative to what has happened to Tyree. But it is also part and parcel of a larger issue and challenge between law enforcement and civilians. And so for us, we've seen, you know, different iterations of city administration try to maneuver in ways that respond to some of the challenges that are happening in communities around crime and violence, but in a way that ultimately ends up violating people's civil rights. So, you know, most people know Tyree was victimized by what's called the, or what was called the Scorpion Unit. It was a unit that was implemented not long after the arrival of the current police chief, D.J. Davis, and 
at the behest of the city mayor, Jim Strickland. And this unit was one of those, you know, clandestine, um, some might even say rogue units that was able to operate with a low level of supervision, you know, a high level of autonomy, and were, you know, terrorizing uh, people in the Memphis community. And so Tyree was, you know, one of those victims. And, you know, the videotapes have spoken for themselves uh, over the last several months as they have been released and have highlighted not only the brutality that police officers inflicted upon him that ultimately caused his death, but moreover, I would argue the ridiculous way that police reports have been written to cover up some of the heinous behavior by law enforcement. We are glad that not only were charges filed on the state level, but last week charges were filed on the federal level, uh, criminal charges, and that's outside of a civil lawsuit that's pending. And I think the price tag on the civil lawsuit is somewhere around $550 million. And the most hopeful thing, I think, at this point, as we start talking about the broader implications of what has happened in the Tyree Nichols case and what has happened to so many people across the city of Memphis over the last several years is that after a lot of advocacy and admonition from people on the ground like myself, and not just in response to Tyree Nichols, but some of us have been asking for a pattern and practice investigation of the Memphis Police Department for the last few years. And earlier this summer, the federal, uh, the, the Department of Justice actually launched that and it's been underway. They've been in and out of town over the last few weeks, hosting a series of town halls and community meetings, and some interviews. So we're hopeful that, you know, these things can result. And Tyree's mom, you know, uh, Sister Rovon Wells has said often that she hopes, and believes, and trusts, and believes that something positive can come out of this. And so maybe that positive thing will be some substantive and structural police reform in Memphis and Shelby County that could continue to reverberate around the country. Uh, one thing I, I I really appreciate is that you're showing what happens after the cameras leave. Um, we have, as I've pointed out, and I continue to point out, over a thousand people that we know recorded um, die at the hands of police every year. And th- that the recordings just started about 10 or 15 years ago, and they're still not up to date. But there's a handful that actually captures the attention of the people. And I think um, Tyree Nichols' case was one that I I spoke on television here um, domestically as well as international broadcasts asking me, but, but is there a difference because the officers are all Black? So does this still have like the same racial undertones of the other police killings? So let's just address that. That's the elephant in the room that many people need to hear about. Why Why is it that the fact that these officers who are black and the implications of, of race are still a part of this case? Yeah, I think, uh, and thanks for that, Gloria. I think that people want to try to justify the response based upon the race of the officers, but as people like Ben Crump have said, one of my dear brothers that is at the Brookings Institute, Rashawn Ray, has, has, has written about this, and they simply say, and I agree with them, that it is not the race of the officers that dictates and determines the behavior. It is the race of the citizen that the officers are engaged with. I've also said, too, that this proves for us that this is a system and structure of policing. And it's not this notion of 
some rogue officers. I mean, now you have five of them in this particular instance. And, you know, when people at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement were trying to buffer the impact of the movement, they started claiming stuff like Blue Lives Matter. Now, last time I checked, Sister Gloria, there are no such things as Blue Lives unless we're talking about Smurfs, and these aren't real people. So you have black people who put on a uniform referred to as a blue uniform, and then the boys in blue or the women in blue engage in the code of blue silence or engage in the culture of policing that has led to what happened to Tyree. So, again, it's not about the race of the officer necessarily. It's about the system and the structure of policing as a whole. And if we really want to address that, we have to address it from a structural and systemic standpoint and not keep trying to isolate it. Now, the only thing that I do want to amplify, and this is also something that Attorney Crump has said, is that we need to see this as a standard of response to police brutality across the board. We need to see this if and when officers are white. This does seem to be something that, at least on its face, seems to be like a much more expedient response from the political infrastructure, but I would encourage people to consider the amount of activism and organizing that has been happening on the ground in Memphis and Shelby County over the last several years. One of the most important things was that people in the community engaged in voter empowerment and engagement and education initiatives that led to the old district attorney, her name is Amy Wyrick, being voted out of office August of 2022. And I have said confidently that had she still been in office and Tyree Nichols was killed like that, the city of Memphis would have probably gone up in flames because she Mm. probably would not have indicted any of those officers because she was 100% from the field during her 14 years in office of never indicting a police officer. And there were upwards of 25 police-involved shootings while she was in office. And so for us, race always has to play a major role in what's happening in our communities because it's stitched into the fabric of our society. And if we ever want to adequately interpret and assess what has happened and why it's happened, we have to talk about race. But it's not simply because these officers were black that this happened, but it's definitely not the case that because they're black, they somehow police different. Black folks, and this has been historic in terms of research, I think about a brother, I think his name is uh, James Farmer Jr., who wrote a book called Locking Up Our Own, and he talked about how even in D.C. early in the 1970s when the police department started getting integrated across the country and in the D.C. area, police department started to increase its number of sergeants and lieutenants who, had, who, who were people of color, but it did not change the fundamental structure substance of policing, and that's what I think we have to continue to talk about. And, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned James Farmer Jr., because he has been a guest on this program um, talking about that book when it first came out. That And, and one of the implications here is this institutional, structural racism. I, I really am, am so um, uh, excited, and not even excited in a good way, but I, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out the fact it is the race of the person that the institution is pointed at 
the destruction of this particular person. And this idea that an, an African-American behind the wheel, an African-American driving, um, having a picnic or, or, or some recreational time selling Girl Scout cookies, doing whatever they may be doing, going into their own home is some way just inherently dangerous and therefore needs this violence that to be um, pushed and tossed and thrown. And in this case, beaten with batons and the five police officers who pleaded not guilty um, this month were indicted by a Justice Department um, in an in indictment, a grand jury and federal civil rights conspiracy obstruction offenses because they, as you pointed out, lied. And a sixth white officer was also fired but not charged. And um, what what as as Tyree Nichols was begging for them to stop, ran for his life. They they caught him, did all of this. The Scorpion Unit is a unit, believe it or not, that our city's mayor has been thinking about reinstituting because we had uh, one here that led to many deaths. Uh, and and there and so the listeners and so this is listener supported radio need to understand that this is not just Memphis, but it's important that it is Memphis, where Martin Luther King was gunned down, Memphis, that same Memphis where the sanitation workers strike led to him speaking there and and then lost his life, as we then note each year on the passing of the anniversary of the passing of Martin Luther King, that this Memphis is the same Memphis and the same Tennessee where the U.S. Supreme Court case set the standard for when and where officers can use deadly force. Same Memphis, same um, Tennessee, we need to understand. And now what I think is so great is that the information is coming down. It is the race of the victim. Mm -hmm. So that means Latino officers, white officers, black officers, the institutionalized racism in the system of criminal injustice is one that believes we are the most vulnerable and therefore this violence can be heaped and reaped upon us and at no point are we supposed to even say no we're not supposed to run we're supposed to stand there and be beaten be shot be tormented tortured and choked and and then wait later on for the video that disappears to after yeah. protests, as you said, or, and prosecutors deciding to hide the the, the evidence, yeah, it, it's it's such a destructive system, and yet we still haven't passed the George Floyd um, Justice and Policing Act. What what ways are you working, and what groups are you working with to try to make a difference around um, breaking the back of institutionalized racism and criminal justice? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot there. Let me also add something to what you just said as well, because I think too often we don't recognize the interconnected nature of what is happening in one system or structure or city and what's happening in others. And so it's not simply just the nature of the um, person, because people often talk about uh, this idea of training. Well, it seems as though the officer's training for de-escalation works well when they encounter a white civilian or citizen, even if that citizen or civilian is armed and dangerous. It's just not something that's implemented or enacted when it comes to black lives, in large part to the point that you made, because if you go back to the origins of policing, it's already embedded with 
and enthralled with this notion of anti-blackness. So I and other ministers, part of uh, the Black Clergy Collaborative of Memphis, which was started by and founded by the current president, um, Dr. Jaren, Jason Lawrence Turner of Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church, have often gotten, gotten together and tried to speak out on and advocate for criminal justice reform. And not just these tacit talking points that I think so many of these police departments try to level out. You actually mentioned that earlier. So how can you say, on the one hand, you want to reform policing or improve the relationship between law enforcement officers and civilians, but you're willing to implement or even reinstitute units like Scorpion after they have been proven to be uh, way too rogue. So I think what we have to do is not only advocate from a community standpoint, a faith-based leadership standpoint, but as I was referencing earlier, we ultimately have to get people elected to public office that share the commitment for criminal justice reform in the vision of public policy. So I've been part of a, well, I founded a um, grassroots voter empowerment initiative, Up to Vote 901, and we've been actively involved in trying to make sure that the people who end up in office are people who share the values of the majority of the citizens in Memphis and Shelby County. And so I encourage people to not only advocate insofar as like these in these individual instances of police brutality are, are concerned, but if we want to minimize the likelihood of that continuing to happen, it's going to have to come through the type of public policies that are needed that add more oversight to law enforcement, that add more power and equity and opportunity to these communities that suffer from disinvestment because all of the studies I've read continue to point to a connection between poverty and crime and violence. And so as long as we continue to be heavy-handed and think that the only response to crime and violence is an increased number of police officers or an increase in the number of contacts between police officers and civilians, my regret is that we'll continue to experience far too many of these and not enough of these opportunities for us to improve the quality of life for our community. And I thank you once again. We're talking with Reverend Dr. Earl Fisher, who is a senior pastor at Abyssinian Baptist Church um, in, in Memphis and the founder, as he said, Up the Vote 901. And 901 is the area code um, in the area in Memphis. Um, and you're also an author of the Reverend Albert Clay um, Jr. and the Black Prophetic Tradition, a reintroduction of the Black Messiah. Um, Reverend Earl Fisher, you're a doctor um, with a PhD. So you know about statistics and the need for data. So one of the uh, measures that I have um, thought of, uh, I think that should be um, a part of what we're doing in order to fight something you have to measure, you have to know how many people are being affected. And at this point, we don't. And one thing that I would promote, and you can, if you could take it into the room with you where you go, and if you find it viable, that the prosecutors who also know, working hand in glove with the police department, how many people who are being injured by police, that they have to keep the record and then submit that data every year under penalty of perjury to the Justice Department, because right now the Washington Post newspaper is probably the place that has the up-to-date information on police-involved civilian deaths. 
And so the FBI doesn't even have all the information. And we keep waiting for each jurisdiction to have something happen that sparks the attention to the newspapers and small town newspapers are closing, that then we get the national coverage. This is not, this is unacceptable. So this is something to consider that the prosecutors are to keep an ongoing record of those people, especially civilian deaths at the hands of police. And they have to turn that information over within a 48-hour period to the Justice Department under penalty of perjury so that we have the data and know the race, the jurisdiction, the names of the officers, and and that information can be updated, but that information has to be obtained. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's akin to some of the things we've advocated for here on the ground and so far as, like, if there's an officer that has been involved in, you know, complaints for abuse of force, then those are officers whose names should be known to the general public, that there should be some easily accessible place for people to go and they can acknowledge and and observe, you know, which officers have been, you know, cited and complained against and what was the result of the complaints. I think what we found here in Memphis and Shelby County is that the Internal Affairs Office has not necessarily been diligent in trying to provide the public with that information. Another point, Sister Gloria, that I think is extremely valuable because we keep trying to connect this notion of policing and arrest with somehow like convictions, and we think that that was sentencing on lower crime. But there were reports that were coming out of one of the local outlets here in Memphis that were arguing only about 30% of arrests actually result in some type of conviction, which is to say if they arrest 100 people, only 30 people ended up actually being guilty of some kind of crime. And you and I both know just because they pled guilty don't necessarily mean they were guilty because sometimes they've been coerced into pleading guilty. So if you add all of that up, that means something is fundamentally wrong with the system of policing because it's not even accomplishing what it is, what it claims to accomplish because you can arrest all kinds of people, but that won't necessarily mean that you are stopping crime because most of the people who you are arresting are ending up back on the street. And I would argue it's a lot of times because you are either arresting the wrong people or arresting people for the wrong reason. And so those statistics actually matter too because they tell the broader story. But I definitely believe every police department should be held to the baseline standard of full transparency and accountability. So if you have officers in your department that have fired their service weapon five times over the last three years, I think that's a high value, and they need to be cited, and people need to know who the trigger-happy officers are. And then there's other things, too, that I think we need to make sure that is available to the public, and I'd love to come back at some other time to talk about it because I know we kind of run a lot of time now. Well, it, it depends. I, I, the value that you are giving, our listeners are just really excited right now. We, we've had, um, Mary Jean and, and Courtney, um, Kenneth and Sarah, um, Mitchell and Clara, um, Layla, um, and, and they are excited. They're supporting our station, 212 2-0-9-2-9-5-0, 212-209-2-9-5-0, 212-209-2-9-5-0, 212-209-2-9-5-0, 212-209-2-9-5-0, on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. This is where you get the information that you need to go out into the world. And as the sirens blare in New York City, I want, if you would just spend a few more moments with us, Reverend Dr. Fisher. And, and if you could speak to the 
um, ministers and other clergy who are listening right now, what more can they do? How can they be um, um, activists, if you will, or at least yeah. better able to do the work around these issues? Oh, Sister Gloria, that, <laughs> you would definitely, we, this, is, this requires a long conversation. I'm going to try to give you a crash course in like uh, advocacy for faith leaders. And the sad reality is, so many faith leaders have been indoctrinated by a theology or religion or spirituality that engages in victim blaming when it comes to black and brown folks in the community. And so they can be so quick uh, to justify, you know, the brutality of an officer, or they are simply silent because they want to try to mythically separate, you know, church and state. When I say if our theology does not take into account the social and political reality, it is ultimately irrelevant theology. And when Jesus is talking for those of us in the, in the Christian faith tradition, in Jesus's inaugural sermon, as it's referred to in Luke chapter four, he talked about the uh, preaching good news to the poor, which I would argue is economic justice. He talked about recovery of sight to the blind, which I would argue is about universal health care. Then he talked about setting the captives free or the freedom of the prisoners. And this is clearly criminal justice reform. And so it's hard for me to conjure up a context where faith leaders should not be advocating for justice as it relates to criminal justice reform, because nobody can adequately or objectively assess the state of affairs right now insofar as our criminal justice system and say everything is working in order with God's will. And if that's not the case, if we are supposed to have God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to engage in the righteous rituals of, first and foremost, learning enough about the social and political realities so that we can be conscious. And we can also engage in listening from the ground up and not from the top down, because too many of my colleagues are quick to listen to people who are in positions of power and authority, even if these are the ones who are manufacturing the inequities in our community. And they don't listen to people from the bottom up. I'm talking about even their congregants. I know for a fact several of my church members have encountered police brutality and these things that we've talked about, you know, personally and pastorally. And I, too, have encountered it because I've been, you know, at the forefront of so many of our um, public protests. And so after you have listened and you have learned, then you can try to lead on some of the issues and I hope people would lead in a way that adds value and adds equity to those who are in positions whereby we have been rendered powerless. And so there, there's, frankly, just too many clergy who are not politically astute enough to adequately engage in this, and they need to be taught and educated and trained in these matters. But then there's also a lot of us who actually had a capacity to do it, we end up on the wrong side of the issues because we've been conditioned by a white evangelical theology that would justify white supremacy, even if it cuts off its own nose despite its face. Amen. I also <laughs> you would very much like to speak to the, the idea that, and this is what I've heard, 
I I don't know if it's true. And my listeners are hearing it at the same time. And listeners, this is the value of law of the land. If you want to support this continued value, call 212-209-2950. I know you are on the edge of your seat because this is powerful. What you're giving us, Reverend Dr. Fisher, is powerful in New York City, coming up from Memphis to New York City to bring some light on what is happening here because we have a black mayor, Eric Adams, who wants to not only take away a college education for police officers. Do you hear this? You're hearing it here on this show first. He wants to stop having college education requirement for law enforcement in New York City and to have law enforcement only have a high school diploma and to reinstitute these secret units that led to deaths before, and that's why they were disbanded. So those people who are listening, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, you must call in. You must support this station because, Reverend Dr. Fisher, please speak to anyone who can then have the words to tell our political leadership not to go down this path. It is a path where destruction is going to end up with lives being lost. Many of those lives are going to be black and brown. And that, once again, the institution led by an Mm African-American can still be an institution Mm -hmm. crushing other African-Americans. Yeah, I, I recently moderated a panel at the National Civil Rights Museum rather than the notion of, you know, policing and uh, they were talking about reconciliation or restoration. And it ultimately tilted into, you know, what most of the panelists would refer to as like the need for a strong revolution in, in policing, if you will. And one of the panelists was a brother that you may know. He's in the New York area. He was a former deputy director for the New York City Mayor's Office under de Blasio. And then when Eric Adams got to office, you know, uh, Eric, Cumberbatch, I believe, was was reassigned or had to find another job. He's currently the senior vice president for policy and community engagement at the Center for Policing Equity. And so we talked about, you know, some of the ways in which, you know, Mayor Adams has, you know, um, rolled back, rolled back so many of the reforms that his predecessor was trying to implement. And so, again, I think when you end up in office and you've been conditioned by the culture of policing, it's hard for you to truly imagine or reimagine what it should look like in a more righteous and reformed posture. Even in Memphis right now, you know, there's this talk about a complement of officers that I believe as a scholar is just unscientific and propagandistic, actually. And then there's this talk about, you know, um, residency requirements. I remember going back and forth with the former police director in one of the city council meetings that they were trying to lobby so that we would roll back the residency requirements so that you could police in the city of Memphis but not even live in the city of Memphis. Then they expanded that now. I think you don't even have to live within 50 miles of the city of Memphis. They went to the people at the state office uh, in Nashville and and asked the, the state legislators to implement some policy that stopped local legislators requiring that people who actually police live in the city. And then there's these other conversations, too, about benefits and more specifically, to your point, educational requirements. What I have seen, Sister Gloria, and I would dare anybody to challenge this premise, 
is that a significant and substantial percentage of law enforcement officers do not know the law. And part of the reason they don't know the law is because they haven't been, like, trained. They didn't have to go to college and study, you know, a, a, a criminal justice, for instance. And so when you keep relaxing these requirements, you are putting people who are more and more ill-equipped out in a community and the tension between law enforcement and civilians continues to increase, and you need people who are conscious and competent and poised and need to be able to make some very crucial split-second decisions. I don't want people who have not been adequately educated to have the authority to use deadly force on site in our communities. I just think that that's a dangerous formula. And I, I would, you know, encourage anybody who's in conversation with, you know, local legislators or state legislators or federal legislators to have a more robust conversation on the merits. And I'll say this in closing, Sister Gloria, most of the time, I've, my experience has been, and, and, and I understand as a, you know, black man with a PhD, I'm in the 1%. And as a black clergy member in the PhD, with a PhD, I'm in probably the, 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 the 0.005 percentile or something like that. But most people don't really want to have a conversation on the merits and the substance. They love these political uh, 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 tropes and talking points, and they love to try to manipulate the general public with appeals to their emotion and not to their intellect. So if we are serious about trying to create an environment where policing can be implemented in ways that don't continuously and inequitably subject black lives to death, I think we need to have some very serious conversation and it needs to be robust. It needs to be longstanding. This is not some, you know, two-day summit type deal or some, you know, four-hour workshop type deal. I mean, we need a extended conversation and it needs to be documented and it needs to be uh, held up as the standard that, need, that people need to respond to when they are talking about what is needed in these local, these state, and these federal spaces insofar as public policy is concerned. Thank you so much, Reverend Dr. Earl J. Fisher, Senior Pastor, Abyssinian Baptist Church, founder of Up the Vote 901, and author. I uh, appreciate you and like very much for you to come back to join us and continue to not just talk about the Tyree Nichols case, but that is an important case, but also to give us the insights we need on better policing and and ways in which we can um, figure out how to dismantle these criminal justice, criminal injustice system. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sister Gloria. Appreciate it. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Um, We have $1,000 of free money, we'll say, given for this rent party. And we've had wonderful, wonderful expressions of, of gifts and donations, but we need yours right now. We're down to the last four and a half minutes to get this money. We don't leave money on the table. You know that. Don't leave money on the table. So I need you to donate now. What you just heard was absolutely amazing. 
And we have the time to have the conversation. I have been on these uh, other stations, whether or not radio or television, and they give you four minutes and five people talking about these very important issues. No one gets to do anything other than a soundbite. 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. This is the time for you to support law of the land. I rarely do this. And if you think about it, um, being a BAI buddy of mine is something that I've asked for many, many times. But to do an outright plea, have not really done that that often. Think about it. Because I spend my time, as I did here, focused on the substance that can make our lives better. There are union workers listening right now. The union workers, people who are members of unions, the union, UAW, these unions are going on strike. They're demanding more. We're here to try to keep you up to date. I plan on doing a show on unions soon. I'm working on a new book that will have a chapter involving union rights. So support Law of the land, support the work that we're doing. 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. We've gotten donations from Brooklyn, from New Jersey. We have more donations from New Jersey than we have from New York. What is up with that? 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. And I would like for those people, especially if you have a teacher in your life, you're thinking about a teacher in your life, you know, that you want to give homage to a teacher, that's something that you could do now. Bring those donations into law of the land. You know, I work hard for you people. I work hard. I'm tired today. I was given this wonderful award last night by, by New York Rep Theater. New York Rep Theater gave me a, a woman um, a, in theater award last night. I was up and I said, I'm still going to do my show. I, I'm going to be here. I might be tired, but I'm still here for you. Have been here for you. I think we're going on... I, I think it might be 10 to 11 years that I have been on Law of the Land for you, wherever I may be in the country. 212-209-2950. We're down to our last minute and a half. 212-209-2950. There's still some of this money left on the table now. Some of this money left on the table and for those of you who know, if you remember my husband, Ernie Marshall, my late husband, Ernie Marshall, you know, he was an accountant. He did not leave money on the table. I won't say he was cheap, but I'll say he was tight. Okay, so let's have some Ernie Marshall money coming in here. 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. Thank you, Manhattan. Thank you, Manhattan. I was like, what is this? And where is the Bronx? Please, where is the Bronx? I have so many Bronx listeners. Now, when we have our very own Manuel Gomez on, who lives in the Bronx, he gets three to 500 text messages coming in seeking his assistance. You would not have known Manuel Gomez existed, but for this show. So of those 300 people who are calling him to get assistance, if you each gave $5, think about that. We would have our money. We would have this matching fund. Everything would be sewn up. I want to see, I want to see right now these Manuel Gomez people who have reached out to him and you know who you are on text, burning his cell phone up. 
He has been on my show numerous times. You would not even have known to reach out to him, but for this show, 212-209-2950. We go down to our last. Thank you. Thank you, Robin in Brooklyn. So as we go to um, this, the, the end of our show, I, I just want to say 212-209-2950 that Reverend Dr. Fisher highlighted something that's so important. Many of our churches are empty right now. Why are they empty? The church and, and, and these, the synagogues and, and other places of worship, um, used to be the places where we could come together as a community and make our communities better. But as he pointed out, there are too many clergy who are either connected in politics, don't want to rock the boat, or, or don't see their constituents, their, 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 their parishioners, their, the people who are coming to, to them for soul salvation is also needing them to help with social justice work, to feed the naked and clothe, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help those people who are, are blind and in need of assistance. All these things are part of what I thought growing up in the church myself, and I have many ministers in my family, that the church and, and these other places of worship are supposed to be doing, the synagogues are supposed to be doing. You know it's in your precepts. You know you say this when you go into service. And yet what happens in the actual community? And that's why so many synagogues, so many churches, so many places of worship are empty because people are seeing that the leaders in these areas are not touching on the social justice issues that are affecting their lives. And here we have um, Reverend Dr. Fisher, who told us that this is pivotal, not just to our lives here, but to our soul and our health. So thank you. Thank you, John in Brooklyn. Thank you, Robin in Brooklyn. 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. My folks are on fire. Fire. Those people who are Manuel Gomez fans, you should be sending in at least $5 right now right now. So don't be a hypocrite. Don't listen to the show. Take down his information. Then, you know, contact him. We talked about murder in the military on this program. Those people who know about injustices taking place in the military. And yes, the military people are helping us in some ways, but there is also institutionalized sexism, institutionalized racism, institutionalized anti-immigrant xenophobia in the military. And he has been working on these issues. So those people also need to contact us. 212-209-2950. right now. Last 30 seconds because the next program was coming on. They have to come on. I have to end. I have to give those words that you know I want to give, but I really want you to support Law of the Land so that I can do what you want me to do, which is to come on and help you to see these things that we can have our discussions when we have the open phone lines that we can actually figure out how to best navigate this world because we are going to navigate this world 